Joining us today is Mark Paul. Uh, Mark is a professor at Rutgers University, is that right? That is. Okay, yes. I actually should have confirmed that with you before. <laughs> uh, I knew that you were in the, the Florida, and the, you know, so anyways. But uh, you recently published a book. The title is The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights, out from the University of Chicago Press and available at all the various booksellers, it seems like. Um, I've known Mark for many years, even before PPP. Um, I think you've published one or two papers at PPP. Um, did you, yeah. Do you recall? Is it two? Yeah, we, we published two papers with PPP, both okay. uh, climate-oriented papers. Right. And, you know, just generally been a fixture on the left econosphere for many years now. Um, anyways, we're here to discuss the book. Now, before we get into the particulars, I'm curious why you wanted to write a book like this right now. Um, is it, uh, you know, just you're an academic and that's what academics do, or is there some specific, you know, catalyst in the, based on the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I'm an academic, but I'm also an economist and it's definitely not what economists do. Now, for some strange reason, economics has really completely moved away from books, which I think is a huge shame because it really gives you a, you know, a platform to really flesh out ideas in their fullest. So, you know, why, why did I write this book and why now? Well, you know, look, we've all read dozens of books about the downfall or the death of neoliberalism. You know, it's either already dead, it's actively dying, one nail in the coffin away. And what all those books tend to do is have a final chapter where they talk about, you know, the post-neoliberal economy. And I found that frustrating because... I think we lack a kind of coherent vision of what it is that we're working towards on the left in terms of rebuilding a, you know, people focused economy. Um, you know, people will throw out words like socialism. Um, that's fine and great, but you know, what do you actually mean by that? Mm -hmm. And so what I was aiming to do here is actually kind of fully flesh out an affirmative vision for, you know, for what a post neoliberal economy can and should look like. Um, and the way I describe it is it's, you know, it's really about building pathways towards socialism while grounding it in the American tradition. And I think this is really important in terms of kind of broadening the, the economic messaging agenda on the left and getting, you know, kind of broad buy-in from working class voters. You know, it's fine for, for you and I, I mean, I know you're a big fan of the Scandinavian countries, as am I. It's great to learn from Finland and, and others. Um, but we also need to find ways to kind of connect the left's economic agenda to the American story. And that's part of what I try to do here in this book, really uncover America's long lost struggle for economic rights. And in doing that, I'm really trying to, to reclaim the very word freedom, which I think is our most powerful word in our political discourse for the left. I think the left's really abandoned this notion of freedom. I think that's a, a major mistake. Um, so, so that's what I'm, I'm setting out here to do. You know, I, it's interesting. I did notice when I was, you know, reading the book, the, the organization of it is in some ways, uh, the, 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 uh, the weighting of the words, I guess, is almost exactly flipped on its head from the usual book, right? Cause usually you get, uh, you get, not nine chapters of uh, history and then one chapter of uh, what to do. And here we get, I guess, maybe two or three chapters of, of, of a history of sorts. And then, and then the rest is what to do. So 
I, I will have to say, you know, f- for my own interests, I much prefer that uh, form of organization. Um, but yeah, so you, you, it seems like you ground your proposals in what the FDR uh, economic rights. So everything is the right to work, the right to housing, the right to an education, the right to health care. It's just kind of like a, a list of, of rights in that sense. Um, and, you know, it seems like the rationale, you, you kind of touched on it, but it seems like the rationale you give is like, well, I think this would be rhetorically useful because we're linking back to FDR, which is a, a major figure in history. And um, I wonder how much because people say this all the time, you know, like the Green New Deal is a good thing because it's the New Deal and all this kind of stuff. And and I always wonder how, how, how do you prove that people care, I guess, about like FDR now we're, uh, what, 80, 90 years away? Like, I don't know. Do people really have a good sense of, of the history, you know, in the general pub- public such that they're really like, oh, this is an American thing as opposed to a foreign thing? Or is that just like a... Is that itself a, a kind of an article of, of faith among certain uh, schools of rhetoric? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a really good question. And I, I want to be cautious here because I do spend a, a good amount of time talking about Roosevelt and the New Deal in the book. But I really try to lift up the argument that I try to make, which is that, you know, American freedom is far more robust than this notion that we have in our minds today, which is often free markets uh, plus negative freedoms, which are essentially freedom from the government. So, you know, freedoms outlined in the Bill of Rights, things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and others. But in fact, you know, it's not just Roosevelt, but it's going, you know, far before Roosevelt, people like Thomas Paine, um, who, who, you know, fought steadfast for each and every individual to have a piece of the collective pie, not as charity, but as their, you know, their birthright. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is connect that we've always had a long struggle you know, you know, for economic rights here in the United States. And I think that that is an important and meaningful argument because I think that the right has really owned the American story for the past few decades. And I think that the left has largely you know, kind of abandoned that with the exception of Roosevelt. And, and lifting up Roosevelt's important. But it wasn't just Roosevelt, right? It was also, as I mentioned, some of the founders, but then we can go to the radical Republicans and Lincoln, where, you know, I mean, Lincoln passed numerous pieces of legislation, really enshrining economic rights into law in many respects. I mean, the Morrill Act is a great example. I myself benefited from a, a land-grant university, currently teaching at a land-grant university, um, as just one example, not to mention land redistribution. But then I try to spend a lot of time also going beyond Roosevelt and connecting both to the civil rights movement, which I think is really crucial and a really forgotten piece of kind of the, the modern economic tradition on the left that is fighting for, for universal economic security, where we can look at the writings of King, of course, but also folks like Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph who were fighting not just for civil rights and political rights for black America, but for economic rights as well. Really, you know, pushing the notion that the right to vote when somebody doesn't have a roof over their head or food on the table is is essentially meaningless. And I think that that's really important for us to lift up here because as we struggle today to protect our civil rights, 
and political rights, and, and as well as our reproductive rights that are increasingly coming under attack, I think we need to realize that you know, meaningful freedom requires more than just protecting those rights, but also going on the offensive and, and securing you know, what, I, what I refer to in the book as economic rights for all. Um, and, and I think that this is something in line with a lot of the work that you and PPP have done. Um, you know, I think we take, approach it from a slightly different perspective, of course, but, but I think yeah. that we do have some similar end goals in mind here. Yeah, I think uh, it's almost like a, um, a, a people's intellectual history, you know, of the U.S. It's like that, that's sort of like the rhetorical register, you know, before we get into policies, which are, you know, probably like 95% overlapping, but it's like, uh, okay, so let's build up a you know, an intellectual history for egalitarian ideas, but let's uh, run it through the U.S. and just kind of be like, here's the U.S., here's this guy and this and this uh, movement and whatnot. And then the alternative approach, or there are a variety of alternative approaches, but one that you commonly will see on the left is to say, well, let's start our intellectual history with, you know, the critique of capitalism beginning in the early 1800s. And then we kind of we follow that intellectual history out. And that's, of course, a very international thing. And and on and on it goes. Um, sure. And- I mean, I think part of what I'm trying to do here, too, is is push back against some of the tradition that just says, you know, socialism or bust. We must you know, blow up capitalism tomorrow or else, you know, all is lost. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I want to transcend capitalism as quickly as the next person. (laughs) But, but, you know, I I think we need to think about what are the pathways to get there. And then also what is the intellectual tradition that we're continuing with? And it's not just a, a story of, you know, Marx wrote a book and we're working towards that. No, you know, we do have this really fascinating history here in the United States where we've had these long struggles and uh, you know, at times people call it socialism and at times people call it economic rights and, and economic security. Um, but, you know, in general, it's really working towards the economic liberation of, of people in this country. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of cross pollination, right? I mean, uh, many of these thinkers that we would, you would put in the American canon, uh, they are, they are not unfamiliar with texts from Europe, of course. So, <laughs> um, of course. But um, yeah, so let's get into some of the policy uh, elements of it. Um, I like the organization where each chapter is one policy area, except for the one that has two, basic income and banking. Uh, But that's fine. (laughs) Um, So, you know, given my own inclinations, of course, as I'm kind of going through this book, the first thing I'm looking for is the welfare state. Let's go to, let's go for the, where's the welfare state? Um, and obviously a lot of it is the welfare state on some level, whether you want to, you know, healthcare is education, whatever, but I'm always starting with the cash welfare state. Uh, cause that's where I've tend to make my hay over the years. And it seems like, uh, you kind of put that under the heading of basic income, um, and when I read that chapter of the book, I, I start by, you know, kind of nodding along to much of the, the wind up for that chapter um, where you're kind of like, look, non-workers need cash incomes and all that. I'm like, yep, 100 percent. Um, but it seemed but but then kind of when we get to the policy uh, aspect of it, rather than settling on saying, you know, we need a we just need a cash benefit program for each non-working group. Of people, which is kind of the conventional approach, right? A child benefit for kids, disability benefit for the disabled, old age pension for the old, etc. You pivot towards basic income. Um, and so I wonder, 
you know, what, what, why, why do you go there and why not just stick with the conventional approach of like wages for workers, welfare for non-workers and, and, and instead kind of go towards the basic income approach. Or maybe you yeah. view them as, as complementary and it's not one or the other. I don't know, but. Uh, you know, to, to a degree, I do indeed view them as complementary. But, you know, the reason I really posit this notion of basic income is because I do ground these arguments in securing people, you know, what Milton Friedman so famously said, which is, you know, the actual freedom to choose. Like, here's where I agree with Friedman, like, I, and where you and I, for instance, I think I've had some disagreements over the years. I want people to be free to enter the workforce if they do so desire or to, you know, decide to stay at home with young kids and still receive a basic income, you know, still be able to meet their basic needs. And and to me, that's meaningful freedom. That's actually providing people with real choices, right? Um, and so, you know, why, why basic income? Really, it's kind of in line with an argument that I try to make throughout the book, which is that targeted universalist policies, I think, are the most durable policies in terms of building kind of, you know, robust strong policies that can last through, you know, political swings. And that also will be, you know, high road policies, you know, as New Deal um, architect Wilbur Ross so famously quipped, programs for the poor make poor programs. And so, you know, we can look at disability benefits today and they're, as, you know, you and I have both argued, they're, they're far too meager. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a strong argument to be made that rather than carving out lots of different policies for and particular groups to make a kind of strong overall policy to ensure that people have their needs met, um, which is why I go towards the basic income. But I want to be clear that for me, the basic income is one part of a more holistic approach to the economy. I think something that's really undervalued in a lot of arguments around basic income is the role of power in the economy. So let me give you an example of if I give everybody a basic income of say a thousand dollars a month, as Andrew Yang was advocating for, you know, that's going to very quickly get get you know withered away by just paying for healthcare insurance, unless we had a Medicare for all type program, or even if we do have universal insurance, you know, that will very quickly I think get whittled away by landlords jacking up rents through the market power that they have. And so what I try to do in the book is take a holistic approach to thinking about what are the needs of people to live fulfilled and, you know, high quality lives. And how do we provide kind of wraparound services from cradle to grave to steal Roosevelt's terms. And so income is an essential component of that. But I think that, you know, income alone is actually insufficient um, unless you couple it with the other rights that we talk about uh, in the book that we can get into more later in the conversation, things like education and housing and healthcare and the like. Yeah, yeah. No, so one question I have for you on the, you know, so one of the reasons why people argue against replacing these other income replacement programs with basic income is that the programs serve not just a uh, a floor mechanism, but they also serve an income replacement mechanism. Now, that's not true for child benefits, which are typically flat, but uh, for old age or disability, obviously, you know, you're getting or unemployment, right? You're getting an amount that's pegged to what you were earning before you became dislocated, whereas with basic income, that uh, would not be the case. So what, what do you think about that? Is that a, pr- is that a problem or is that a, one of the, the charms of uh, basic income that it's just the floor and is not uh, you know, pegged to prior earnings? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that unfortunately, I don't dive into in the book, you know, unfortunately, you have these pesky things called editors, and they give you word limits. And so you can only do so much sometimes, you know. Sure. Um, but but I, th- I do think that these are complementary. And, and here's why, you know, I think that first and foremost, setting a, a, the strong floor through a basic income is essential. Um, but I do think some degree of income replacement, such as unemployment insurance, is important in terms of income smoothing. So, right. you know, look, if I own a home and I have a mortgage and my child is in daycare and I, all of a sudden I lose my job, I get a basic income and my income plummets 60%, uh, you know, I'm going to have a terribly hard time meeting my bills as I look for a new job over the next three or four months. And, and that is problematic. So I do believe we need income smoothing programs. Um, and I see this as completely complementary with strengthening the existing UI system, which, as we know, is an utter disaster right now. So I don't see any reason to make those as, as trade-offs. I just see this, you know, what I'm really focusing on here in the book is how do we build not just a floor in the economy, but a tightly woven well-being state to ensure that nobody falls through. All right, so let's let's move on to the education part of the book. Um, obviously, of course, we have free K through twelve, so there's quite a lot of success already there in our society. And uh, not surprisingly, I suppose you say there should be a right to college, by which you mean uh, college should have the cost of zero dollars. You actually use zero dollars, which I thought was interesting. Um, so, for starters, I'm curious what your particular vision of free college is, right? Because Across the world, student benefits generally take the form of a combo of tuition subsidies, living grants, and subsidized loans. Obviously, we're more on the subsidized loan uh, uh, end of that spectrum. So I I assume you want tuition subsidized to zero. But I wonder, because this is something I wonder with the free college debate generally in the U.S., in your mind, does free college also mean providing living grants to college students, you know, uh, and, and what form do you think that would take? I guess, I guess in your world, that's the basic income for them, or would you... That's exactly in, in, right. All right. So in the absence of the basic income, though, let's suppose, right, you could only... Would you also include a living grant for college students? Is that necessary for it to be free? Or would you say, oh, well, for the living expenses, you know, they should get a little job or, or take a loan or whatever? Yeah, you know, I think we should think about college as a full-time job. So let me use myself as an example. I went to community college for a while, and thankfully I did well in community college, and I did well enough to earn a full ride to UMass Amherst, um, which is where I got my undergrad and PhD. Um, However, I didn't get a grant for living expenses, so I had to take on substantial amounts of student debt because I got to eat and pay the rent and, you know, own a car because there was no, (laughs) no decent public transit and you got to get around. Um, and so, you know, I was left with student debt because of that. And I think that, you know, when people turn 18, we're okay sending them off to war, but we're not okay treating them as actual adults, you know, financially independent adults when it comes to their education. And I think that's a mistake. And so for us to actually start treating them like real adults, I think that, yes, we need to provide them with the opportunity to go to college, be it a four-year school or a, trade school um, for free. And yes, we should also provide them with a living stipend uh, during that. And and that connects to the basic income, but it doesn't only connect to the basic income. It also connects, you know, to the other rights I outlined in the book, like healthcare. You know, I also had to take out in debt to to have health insurance when I was in school, um, as well as housing. 
you know, I think that one area of expansion of, of social housing, which we can talk chat about more later, could, you know, indeed focus in college areas where right now, you know, a lot of times uh, colleges are a big focus of, of extraction from the housing sector, actually. REITs are heavily invested, real estate investment trusts are heavily invested in most college towns yeah, yeah. where they're, you know, providing exorbitant rent to extract resources from students as fast as possible. I think that's a great area for the state to step in and ensure that, you know, those types of practices come to an end. Uh, but, but in short, you know, the goal is that people can graduate debt-free, which means free tuition coupled with, you know, living expenses covered. So with that, so would there be loans at all? And then I don't mean to get too much in the minutiae here, but one of the things I, I find interesting about, you know, I'm always looking at the Nordic countries is, you know, they got the free college, <clears throat> they got living grants to varying degrees, and yet the kids still have student debt. Um, and I've talked to people over there, looked at the benefits, and it's kind of an odd situation. Like if you look at something in Finland, you know, the colleges are free. The kids get a living grant, and they also have a special housing allowance for students. Um, but then people still, they, but then kids still take out loans. Um, it looks like maybe they wouldn't have to, like if they really wanted to kind of live, you know, the old student life, you know, the meager utilitarian student life. But they just decide, hey, I'd, I'd like to have, you know, a little extra spending. Uh, be able to live more than just the bare minimum while I'm studying. Um, and so they do take out loans. And so I wonder if to really get all the way there, you, you almost got to just say to students, hey, you cannot get loans. Like, I don't care. You know, you can live on 2000 a month or whatever we would think the final amount would be for them. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, I, I have to say, you know, hey, I drank PBR through college rather than nice craft beer, which I enjoy today. And I definitely engage in some income smoothing to save. And I think that, you know, perhaps others should. I don't think we should ban loans, but I don't think that we need to have, you know, uh, heavily, heavily engaged state in student loans the way we do today. So I think that's the line that I would take. You know, look, if people decide to take loans on top of things, I don't think we should, you know, stop them. But I do think that we should, um, you know, really move away from the the student loan um, industrial complex that we've built up here in the United States. Pri um, private loans at a at a market interest rate, maybe that'll get the students <laughs> in that scenario to to think twice about, you know, if they coupled with meagerly. Yeah, I, though I do say, and and you know, I, I think it would be important to couple that with you know, strong regulations that require a pretty significant education component for students to actually take the loans out. I think that there's a lot more we can do around student loan education. Often, yes, they are just flat out, you know, most students take loans due to need. But in that scenario, I think that adding kind of a financial literacy component actually would make sense. Interesting. I've always wondered, do those programs actually work? It's the same with like notice. In consumer law, this is always a big question when you're doing consumer protection. How much does education and notice and uh, disclaimers and all that, have, what effect does it actually have? Um, and I tend to take the view that it doesn't have too much. You need to be more iron-fisted in, in cramming these products into the right form. But uh but maybe with college students, it might be a little bit different. I, in theory, they're supposed to be 
somewhat intelligent, right? Uh, to made it that far. So, um, I think a little, a little kind of finance one hundred and one is is can can do us all some good. So, what do you make of uh, you know? Because the book uh, starts with the uh, kind of inequality framing, which I'm sure most uh, the listeners are familiar with. Obviously, hey, the U.S. is very rich in aggregate, but uh, the maldistribution of that income and wealth has created so many problems. Um, but of course, one of the arguments against the, the the free college, such as it is, is that it that it actually uh, tends to exacerbate inequality. At least, you know, if you hold all else equal, because most people don't go to college and the people who do are disproportionately from well-off backgrounds and they end up sorting into the higher paying jobs in the labor market. And even among people who go to college, there's a lot of stratification where, you know, the people who are going to expensive uh, four-year schools are, you know, more well-off and, and, and the ones that are going to community college or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if you put it all together, the, the actual distributive result of student benefits is, 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 pro inequality or it's you know it increases inequality as opposed to reducing it so what do you what do you say to those people yeah so you know for me this is basically a a completely bogus argument and and let me explain two reasons why so first of all you know yes inequality is a problem and yes we should do something about it and you know there's really essentially two policies that we should be leveraging in my opinion to to really tackle the inequality problem and this is besides building the robust floor in the economy that we've been talking about. And so here we have to talk about ceilings, not just floors, but ceilings. And that is actual real progressive income taxation and actual real progressive wealth taxation. So rather than saying, does every single policy meet you know, progressive credentials, which I think you know we should debate that. And in general, I think free college does. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to look at how we establish the economy as a whole. And as a whole, you know, we simply should address, you know, income and inequality at the top via taxation. Um, this is how we've done it in the past. It's worked tremendously well. And I think this is how we should do it moving forward. In fact, you know, during the New Deal, Roosevelt actually proposed the idea of a maximum income, something that we haven't talked about recently in the United States, but I think we should. And if you put the income uh, that he proposed into modern dollars, we're actually talking about $425,000 a year. Now, I'm not sure if that's the right number. You know, maybe it should be a little lower. Maybe it's only a quarter million dollars should be the max, or maybe it should be higher. Maybe people should be able to earn, you know, up. I don't want to say earn. Maybe people should be able to get up to one or $2 million a year because nobody really earns a million dollars a year. Uh, but I think that's a discussion we should be having. So in terms of progressivity, you know, that's where I, I would kind of, push that discussion towards. But you said some, you know, a really crucial phrase, which is holding all else equal. And we know that's not how the real world works. And indeed, the arguments against free college are the exact same arguments that were made in the 1910s against free public high school. Disproportionately wealthy white people go to high school. Free public high school is going to disproportionately benefit, you know, the the wealthy elite. Um, and in turn, we should not have, you know, free public high school paid for by, you know, fairly universal taxation. It's the exact same argument made against college today. And I don't think anybody would make that argument against, you know, funding high school. <laughs> and the sure, reason yeah. for that is, is when you eliminate the cost barriers, right? Plus you provide the income supports so that people can actually afford to go. The demographics of who goes to college change drastically. 
I mean, yes, I do think we should pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college, so to say, you know, what Hillary Clinton famously pushed well, against so pe- in 2016. Pe- people will point to, you know, in the European nations where, you know, the cost barrier has been removed, and, and yet you still see a similar pattern of who attends and who doesn't, um, you know, as far as family background is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that we can or should think of free college as a silver bullet. There's lots of other reform, complementary reform policies that we need to actually build a more egalitarian economy. So that would include, you know, really changing how we finance the K through 12 system as one example, right? Where a lot, you know, there's a lot of students who are better prepared because of the towns they grow up in that have higher property taxes, you know, and, and are economically segregated as just one example. Um, I, I, do think that there's also, you know, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that if we were to provide kind of this more holistic approach through economic rights, that people would be more taken care of and would actually have the option to go to college if they so desired. Because there's not only the cost of college, but there's also the cost of putting off earnings for lower income households, mm-hmm. where if they need to help support a family, you know even if college is free, they're not earning money for two or four years. And that's a big problem. But with the economic rights that I lay out in the book, I think that, you know, the, the bulk of that problem would really be addressed. Yeah. You know, I always say when people ask this question, I'm, you know, I'm always like, uh, well, you know, what's interesting about the, uh, let's say a Nordic country with their free college and whatever is, uh, yeah, you know, in a, in a way there's the inequality in the family background and all that, but you know what they've done. And, and these are two policies that seem to go well together. And I, I guess this is a, sort of where you land as well is that, uh, the wage, the college wage premium in those countries is very small because they've compressed the wage uh, scale with their union agreements. And then you've got the taxes even on top of that. And so, you know, once you've kind of compressed the wage differences from going to college, you know, the case for making it free becomes so much easier, you know, because just to say, well, well, how are we going to charge people to get into jobs that don't even pay all that much more than if you just go straight into blue collar work or whatever? Um, but of course, the risk in the U.S. context is that we don't compress the wage scale. We don't uh, jack up the tax. Um, and so we maintain the college wage premium um, and then we pour on the student benefits and then it just becomes like a windfall of sorts. But uh, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real concern. I, I do want to say the goal here and, and the vision I lay out is not to ensure everybody goes to college, but to ensure that people actually have the opportunity to go to college, the actual choice. And and that's why for me, you know, laying out the policies the way I do is really all about how do we enhance freedom to actually choose um, so that people can live the life that they deem valuable for them. All right, so let's move to healthcare. Um, it seems like on healthcare, we just kind of get Medicare for all, right? It's a pretty, pretty well established kind of stuff. Do you have any? Are there any like uh, sort of novel, novel tidbits uh, on healthcare that you know you think have escaped some of the public debate? It's just because we spend years on Medicare for all. So I wonder, you know, if, if we got any little, little details in there that maybe people who even who were paying attention to that debate may have missed. Yeah. You know, here I draw, as you probably noticed, I draw a fair bit from the excellent work you've done around Medicare for all, as well as others where, you know, it's just 
absolute common sense to transition to a Medicare for all system. And, you know, what I do in this chapter, which I try to do in, in all the rights chapters is, you know, essentially three things at once. One is tell a brief history of, you know, the long fight for universal health care here in the U.S., which has been, uh, you know, essentially part of the American story for over a century. Um, indeed, Frances Perkins, who is, I think, somebody who is hugely undervalued in American history. She was the, the first female um, member of the cabinet. She was Roosevelt's labor secretary and the longest serving labor secretary in U.S. history. You know, fought for this idea. And unfortunately, it was her one major, you know, goal coming into the administration that she was not able to accomplish was universal health care. Um, the second thing I try to do is really debunk the conventional wisdom, kind of, you know, the, the neoliberal arguments for, for why these types of programs are wrong. And then the third thing is making the affirmative case, uh, you know, why this makes economic sense. And, and with healthcare, I have to say, you know, the economic case for Medicare for all is just so straightforward and so strong. Um, but really, yeah, you know, the, I think listeners will be familiar with, with a lot of the arguments. Um, the core of it being that that we need to provide everybody with free universal health care. And we, uh, in this case, I, I fully agree that we should make private insurance illegal. Uh, we just need to outright abolish it um, in order to fully decommodify the healthcare sector. And, and, and I you know, do want to highlight that because when we're talking about building the economy that we need, I think we need to be much more intentional about what areas we need to kind of guide markets or bound markets, put up guardrails, so to say, and what areas we should decide collectively as a democracy that markets just don't belong. When it comes to life and death, I think that there's just no strong reason uh, or argument that markets have any role to play. What do you think about uh, like self-pay or concierge? Would that be permissible in the Medicare for all system? Or we have just the, you got to go through the single payer. I really am a, a strong believer in just forcing everybody into the single payer system in this instance. I think that otherwise you just end up with kind of, you know, tears and, and embedded yeah. inequality. Yeah, that's what that's that that's the answer I gave to Ezra Klein when he asked something similar. I was like, Well, I'm just trying to prevent two tearing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not exactly, really trying exactly. to get rich people to have different access than the rest. So, you know, I know it sounds extreme, but it's really not uh you know, it's it's a good thing. I'm not I'm not trying to be crazy here. Just trying to make sure everyone has the same access. You know, um, that's exactly right. You shouldn't be able to cut the line based on what your job is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe always... unless you're the president. You know, maybe the president gets to, You know, the, the president gets their own personal doctor. I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few uh, important. Uh, very, very important to personnel or something. Of course, he has to go to a military hospital. Uh, so I guess the, 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 the military would probably continue to have some kind of parallel healthcare system for the troops and whatnot. Um, but I don't actually remember how people, I think usually the proposals do preserve the VA. So um, of they course, do. that's yeah. even more more full-blown than uh, Medicare for all, right? Because it's pu public hospitals. Uh, but all right, so let's um, let's go let's let's go into the job guarantee. You know, I kept that one for the last because I know we've had some we've had some debates about this over the years. Um, but for starters, on that for this uh, uh, episode of because you know I don't want to rehash all that stuff, but I'm curious. You know, obviously, you know, give a little rundown on on what the job guarantee is as you see it. But what I'm curious is. 
uh, also to understand how the job guarantee in your mind is supposed to fit in with the overall unemployment benefit system. Um, cause to, to my mind, the job guarantee is just a different, you know, it, it is a way of doing unemployment benefits. Um, and so I'm always curious when people propose it, how do they want it to fit in with the rest of the unemployment benefit system? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question for us to interrogate because I think it's a mistake that people make too often where they just look at one program in isolation rather than think about it, how it fits into the broader welfare state we're trying to design. So, you know, I do think that people should have access to high quality employment. And this is precisely why I advocate for a job guarantee, which was you know, one of the key policies, for instance, fought for throughout the civil rights movement. If we think about the March on Washington, it was the March on Washington for freedom and jobs, where freedom was, was essentially synonymous with well-paying jobs. Now the right to work and, and, you know, I think encompasses more though than a job guarantee. So let me just step back and, and highlight the three things I try to argue in this chapter, which I, I would hope assuages uh, some of the differences we've had over the years. One is um, that in order to actually provide people the right to work, we need a federal reserve that's actually committed to the dual mandate in earnest rather than simply supporting price stability above its full employment mandate, a mandate which was one by a movement uh, really pushed and fought for uh, and led by Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s late, late wife and intellectual partner. So I, I wonder, by the way, on that, because when I was reading uh, this part of the book, I, you know, I know these books have long lead times, so I, I was kind of curious, like, uh, thinking, yeah. well, it seems like right now, you know, the Fed, I know they're increasing rates or whatever, but certainly, you know, they, unemployment's quite low, you know, they seem to have heard the message at least to some extent. So what do you think about, you know, are, have, have they kind of heeded this already and really, you know, pursued the employment prong to your satisfaction or do they need to go further or what? Yeah, definitely not to my satisfaction, but I do think that at least, you know, um, earlier in Powell's tenure, he did um, hear the, he, he did pay better credence to the dual mandate than the past few Federal Reserve Board chairmen have. Um, the, you know, but the, no, the, racial, the racial employment gap, I think, is, is didn't that, it's gone, right? Or very close? Uh, it's certainly not gone, but it is uh, substantially lower than the two times higher black unemployment, which is what it has historically been. The, the black unemployment is starting to creep up um, in the past yeah. two jobs reports, unfortunately which is kind of a, a red herring for, for potential turn in the labor market. Um, so I do think that the Fed is moving far too fast and is you know unnecessarily trying to hit the economy over the head with a baseball bat at the moment. I would like to see the Fed back off. I mean, we did see them pause rates most recently. Um, but you know, as they pause rates, they said, but don't worry, there will be multiple more hikes to come. And I think that latter part was, was just unnecessary. Um, but, you know, it's true that the Fed is is rethinking what full employment might be. They're currently saying it's about 4.5% rather than the 5.5-6% that they argued was quote-unquote full employment the past couple of decades. And that, that is a step in the right direction, though not sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to secure the right to work, you know, step one is a Fed that really supports full employment, uh, which is, I understand it as no involuntary unemployment. You know, from 1943 to 1945, during World War II, unemployment was 1.7%. Uh, 
there, I see no reason why we can't fight to get back towards towards that level of unemployment. And when uh, you say involuntary unemployment, I mean, does that include, you know, as I say, frictional unemployment, things like that, or? Yes, I do think that some frictional unemployment is healthy. You know, people people moving between jobs is, is normal. This is precisely why we have unemployment insurance and, and why I think that we should, you know, improve the unemployment insurance um, system rather than abolish it, which some people argue. That's not, not what I argue at all. Um, so step two, and, and this is where you and I have had some disagreement in the past, is to permanently expand public sector employment in the United States. I think this is a really important area, and that has to be coupled with state su support for lower levels of government, state and local governments during economic downturns, so they don't have to lay off their workforces um, when they're economic contractions. But a larger public employment sector will actually lead to less cyclical uh, spikes in the labor market as we move through the business cycle. So that'll be a really important aspect to it too. And then mm -hmm. finally, we have the job guarantee. Um, and here, you know, my vision is indeed that we strengthen unemployment insurance. We also have the basic income for people who decide that they don't want to work. But then you have a job guarantee so that people who want to work are willing to work, um, have access to employment if they can't find it in the private market. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of people, particularly youth or people who are reentering the labor market um, for various reasons that don't qualify for unemployment insurance and that, you know, are, are really left high and dry. And I think that the job guarantee is just an important part of building a comprehensive well-being state to ensure that people have access to jobs if they so desire them. So what, but would you make those people eligible for unemployment benefits, right? Because in other countries, if you are, uh, you've just graduated school and you're job seeking, you can get an unemployment benefit. It's, it's in the US, you know, where you can't, and obviously some other countries don't, don't extend it there as well. But that's part of where I get into a little bit of unclarity, you know, because the, the point is like, well, this will, will fill the gaps of the unemployment system. And in my mind, I'm saying, well, just eliminate the gaps in the unemployment system, you know, like we, the other countries have done it. So um, I don't know, like, would you favor allowing, say, a recent grad to just simply get on unemployment benefits and job seek? Or do you think it's, you know, it's good that they can't and then we'll shuttle them on to the JG? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, a question that I'm going to, going to say should be up for debate. You know, I, I am fine, you know, if people decide that, you know, they should be able to go on unemployment insurance for a couple months, you know, maybe it's two to four months, something like that. And, and after that transition to the JG, um, I, I see no problem with that. But, I, you know, so I think that sometimes these, these, you know, more minute details should be part of, you know, enhancing public discussion around these ideas in the first place, which is one of the core reasons I wrote the book is to get us to think about how do we actually build this, this comprehensive welfare state rather than just thinking about single programs in isolation. We have to think, think carefully about how they work together. Um, yeah, so see, I'm that's a little agnostic to is, is the end of the day there, you know, I mean, you know, short term UI and then transition to job guarantee, I think is, is a very reasonable approach here. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. See, see, this is very useful because I've I've tried to have these discussions before with cer with certain other advocates, and like you just kind of hit a wall. But there's a that's a co that's a coherent scheme, right? And it actually matches with some schemes you'll see in other countries where 
uh, you're eligible for unemployment benefits for a certain period of time, though usually it's, you know, in some, you know, it's 300 days or 400 days or something. And then they really kind of, in that, in those environments, they would, you, you know, this would be seen as kind of a conservative thing. Then they really kind of start turning the heat up on you and the benefit levels maybe get cut or they start making you do work activities and things like that. And it, it kind of sounds like that's, your vision is in part is to say that uh, unemployment benefits are not going to be there to just kind of cover all unemployed people. It's, it's not going to be an option for everyone at all time. It will be a, a limited duration thing and exactly. for certain people who have a certain work history and then everyone else, if they want to get on a job and they can't get a normal one, they, they do need to submit to the work activities as they would say uh yeah well i'll, I'll disagree with your framing submit yeah i know i know but that's what they let's that's remember, how they is but, it, so. but let's remember there's a basic income there too right so that people have the option of, oh, of yes, which path yes. to go and, and and this is why i think that you know our, our disagreements should come a lot closer together in this book you know with my fleshing out of this book because i think that you know th this is giving people the actual freedom the actual choice to decide do I want to take a JG or do I want to, you know, stay home and do something else while receiving a basic income? It's, you know, people don't have to, to sub submit to work requirements. People actually get to, to choose what kind of life they want to lead. And, and one thing I want to highlight here, and, and the reason I was, you know, saying that these should be up for discussion is a big part of what I'm trying to do with this book is, is really highlight the fact that currently, you know, we always talk about ourselves as a democratic nation, but the idea of democracy completely comes to a halt when the gates of the economy open up. And I do think that many of these issues should be opened up for much more, um, you know, robust public debate for us to actually think collectively about what kind of economy we want to build towards what ends. You know, we need to to ensure that we build an economy that serves us rather than us being a little automaton serving this abstract thing that we call the economy. Sure, yeah. I wonder, um, well, okay, so let me ask the question then, you know, in the absence of basic income, because this is where the unemployment discussion usually occurs, right? Um, because yes, I guess if you have a, a, a basic income as you uh, propose it, then, you know, and I've said this before, then then everyone essentially is receiving unemployment benefits all the time, right? On some level, right? At least a basic minimum unemployment benefit. Um, so I wonder uh, if you don't have basic income and you're just muck mucking around with the unemployment system, would you be willing, you know, would you then say, yeah, everyone who is job seeking, you know, should at least be eligible for, you know, a bare minimum unemployment benefit um, and maybe have the option as well to do JG and, and JG will pay better. Um, but, but that that should be an option, you know, for a recent grad or maybe someone who's long-term unemployed or who's coming out of uh, many years out of the workforce because they were taking care of kids or, or whatever, right? Like sh should all those people be, be eligible for a basic unemployment benefit? Or are we going to say, no, even in that scenario, you know, they need, they, they need to, you know, have a J they need to go to the JG or, or get, get no income. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to in part reject the, the question on premise uh, because we, you know, part of the goal here is to flesh out this notion of an economic bill of rights that should be viewed holistically. 
you know, and, and of course we know that's how the policy process works, that you just flesh out your whole program and it gets adopted hook, line and sinker. Uh, so that is indeed the reality in Washington um, where we don't actually have to face these trade-offs, but <laughs> no, uh, you know, to, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, abs- absent uh, basic income, of course we should focus on strengthening what existing cash transfer programs we have uh, while also I think, you know, pushing very hard on achieving true full employment. Uh, I think that these things are are complementary. I really do. I, I think that the you know, unfortunately, we've sometimes been stuck in a scarcity mindset, and uh, I will cop to this. I've been guilty of this myself in some writings I did, you know, eight years ago, give or take, where I did see things as an either or far too often, and and I think that that's sometimes a mistake we make on the left. Um, and that's why I really tried to flesh out this this broad vision, or, or so to say, this north star, so people can understand the connective tissue between the different policies that people are proposing on the left. I think far too often, and and, and I think a reasonable criticism is that the left has this laundry list of ideas and programs that they want, and I think far too you know economists and policymakers are actually able to articulate what connects a Green New Deal to Medicare for all, to college for all, you know, what are we actually working towards here? Um, And I think what we're working towards is at the end of the day is freedom. Ah, I see. Okay. Ah, it all makes sense now, right? Is that, that's what ties it all together. Uh, I I mean, I guess I should have, that should have made sense based on the uh, chapter (laughs) titles, but uh, in my mind, I was just, I was in part just being like, okay, yeah, this is the laundry list, uh, you know, it's uh, mostly yeah. thumbs up, but uh, I didn't fully, it's all, I, it's all freedom-based, um, I, I suppose. Precisely. Uh, that's, that's a frame you could, it's interesting. I wonder if, uh, well, how much is that? Well, you know, you can't be free if there's, the environment's no good. I guess that makes sense, right? you're dead you yeah we're all screwed free. in a burning world <laughs> i mean I I, yeah, I I for one was stuck in my house for days when the wildfire smoke came to uh encompass that's true yeah uh, they, the new york they, new jersey area they canceled they canceled my daughter's soccer practice so she she had a severe restriction of freedom on that day as she perceived it certainly um okay so the last chapter then uh is how do we pay for it? And uh, what <laughs> you know, it's sort of a rehearsal of uh, some MMT related stuff. But then at the end, you know, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, okay, yes, of course, you know, when the um, economy is under capacity, you know, you can use uh, monetary and fiscal expansion to uh, pay for, for for things. It's no problem. The the uh, side consequence of that is just growth. What's not to like about that, right? It just activates more people into the workforce and all that. So good stuff. But uh, obviously, you hit a limit. Um, and of course, I'm thinking about at the moment where you got all the inflation and whatever. And it seems like, yeah, you know, maybe if you did try to uh, deficit finance a shift to Medicare for all in this moment, it could be inflationary. Um and so we finally get to the end and, and, and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, you'll need taxes. <laughs> and so I wonder what's the, I don't know, one of the things I always find strange about this habit that some people have gotten into on the left is 
what you know they there's this lead up in which it's kind of seems like oh cool you're saying we don't have to raise taxes we don't have to raise taxes and then and then finally the final shoe drops and it's like yeah okay of course yeah you will probably need to raise tax and then i feel like well what was the point of all of the lead up about how we don't need to raise tax or at least kind of giving that impression um so i don't know what do you what are your what's your take on i guess i'm asking about the utility of of the rhetoric of leaning into how we can do counter cyclical spending um, and conflating that with these sort of permanent welfare state expansions, which, you know, will probably, you know, will require taxation at some point, presumably. Look, I think we don't have a great language for talking about taxation right now. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, we on the left really need to work on. Yeah. And I try to do this in the book, although, you know, maybe I could have been more successful at it because as you, you characterized it just a moment ago, you know, I, I tried not to fall into that, that trap. I really do try to, to frame taxes as a public good for a lot of reasons. You know, if we were to pass a Medicare for all type program, yeah, yes, we are going to need broad-based taxation. And, but I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing or something we should shy away from. And instead, what we need to do is talk to people and explain to people that, you know, with taxes come benefits. And you know, at the end of the day, your tax bill can go up and you actually might still have more money in your pocket than you would otherwise. Let me use Absolutely. myself as an example. You know, I have a good job. I am a tenure track professor at Rutgers University, a major public university in the United States. I pay $830 a month in my health insurance premium, not even counting co-pays and deductibles and everything else. Under a Medicare for all type program, if all of a sudden I pay $500 a month more in taxes, but I don't pay $830 a month in health insurance, I am financially better off. Not to mention I won't have to change healthcare ever again, because let me tell you, I'm not that old. I'm only in my mid-30s, and I've already changed healthcare 13 times in my adult life. And it sucks. Every time, it sucks. Yeah, it's terrible. It's a huge cost. Yeah, people never yeah, people never system. talk about uh I feel like one missing element of that which I didn't even fully think about until I've done it probably 5 6 times is your deductible restarts which doesn't really make any sense. Like wait a minute. Okay, you have a policy where you want me to have a certain amount of skin in the game over the course of a calendar year because you think that'll prevent you know unnecessary u- utilization. And yet actually the amount just keeps changing over the year and then I, I do some of the skin and then I have to start over and we're not even in a new year yet um, but yeah. yeah but it's a great way for the insurance companies to get every last dollar out of you that they can yeah that's you know they at least need to figure that out like I should be able to I don't know transfer my deductible from the other you know like put apply that to the I mean that would be so complicated but you know yeah. conceptually but, it makes but, sense you know, yeah, I agree. But here, I, I, I just think it's it's really important to double down on this notion of, of really further developing how we talk about taxation and taxation, not just as taking money away from people, but as providing essential goods and services like health yeah. insurance. Like yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, but and, I always think of that as like in a way where the left has kind of started, it, you know, that would have been the thing you would have done is to be like, well, look, dude, like you can say – you know, you're saving money on taxes, but if the money you save on taxes, you then just got to hand right over to an insurance company or right over to a childcare center, or you got to start piling it away into personal savings, into 401ks, into all that kind of shit to protect yourself against something that the welfare state typically would, then what does it matter? 
Like what? What is what yeah, is the savings right. amount right. to? Um, but it seems like instead there was a pivot there for a few years, which I feel like the first half of the chapter maybe leaned into a little bit. That was kind of just instead of pushing back on that, just kind of saying, well, actually we don't need them. You know, you could do it without tax. Yeah. Well, I, I think it really depends on, on what we're talking about. And so I think that, you know, for instance, that the transition away from fossil fuels, I don't really think we need, you know, to rely on taxes with the exception. And, and this is a area that there's a lot of disagreement around. I do believe we, we should have a carbon tax, but it's a discussion we maybe want to leave aside for now. I'm um, with you on that. Me and you, we're, we're, <laughs> we're standing alone on the left on that one. We are. I wrote a paper for PPP on, on carbon taxes. And I mean, hey, pr- look, I mean, prices matter. At the end of the day, we live in a market economy and prices do matter. When, when gas prices shot up, thanks to Putin's war in Ukraine, coupled with corporate profiteering, you know, what did we see? We saw EV sales boom. We saw hybrid sales boom. And we saw people ditching their trucks and SUVs left and right. Absolutely. I'm not saying that prices should be the only mechanism or the primary mechanism, but they're part of the landscape. And I think that we're at fault if we ignore that side. Yeah, I always I always try to flip it on the head for for those folks, and 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 I say, well, who do you want to set the prices? You want the market to set the prices? I want the state to set the prices. You know, like the market's doing terrible at setting the prices. Um, yeah, you know, I try to paint right. them. I try to paint them as the neolib. You know, because they're like, well, you want to m- yeah. mess around with prices? That's neolib. I'm like, what's more neolib than letting the gas market set the price? Well, yeah, let, letting big oil set the price, right? Yeah, let let, it, let it Exxon yeah. decide what we pay. That doesn't seem that doesn't seem that doesn't seem that socialist great. to me. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think it, just to to return to taxation here for a moment, though. I mean, broad based taxes to pay for certain things. Yes, absolutely. Um, the second thing I talk about, though, it, is. I think part of developing our language around taxation is massively increasing taxation on the wealthy. And as we briefly chatted about earlier, considering a uh, maximum income and a real limit also on wealth accumulation here in the country. And it's not only to free up economic space, but it's also to protect our democracy from capture from the oligarchs, which is where we are here today. I mean, like who drives headlines? Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. Why? Because they have you know, just as much, if not more power than 99% of our elected officials. Uh, and, and I think that's something that we need to put to an end. And taxation is, you know, one of the best ways to do that. Yes, that or, or, or submarines, apparently. Um. <laughs> All right, well. uh, I think next up will be, will be uh, the spacecraft to the moon, uh, sorry, to Mars, which I certainly hope Musk takes. Yeah, well, they're already, you know, putting some rich people up in those like blue origin crafts. So I guess, you know, maybe that'll be a new thing. It's just kind of like the self-immolation of uh, affluent people chasing these extreme, uh, these extreme projects. Um, but anyways, that I think will, 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 will finish out our, our discussion. The, the book is The Ends of Freedom. Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. Thank you, Mark Paul, for coming on today. It's been a pleasure.